celebrate that today. We give thanks to you as the body of Christ here at Life Point. Last time that I was up here, we began a, a journey through the book of Philippians. We began with an introduction to this letter. And if you'll remember, we spent most of our time in the book of Acts looking at the birth of the Philippian church. And also, if you'll remember, the church at Philippi got its start because the Spirit of God prohibited the Apostle Paul from going to other places. Remember, he wanted to go somewhere. He wanted to go up to the northeast of where he was, and the Spirit of God stopped him from going. So he attempted to go down kind of to the southwest, to the west, and the Spirit of God stopped him from going. So he made his way up to the northeast um, with his traveling companions to the city of Philippi, where the church in Europe was, the first church in Europe was planted. So this was the beginning of many years of partnership in the gospel, and it was one of, the, one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter. He wanted to express his gratitude for their partnership with him and their support for him over the years. And so that's what I want to look at today as we begin to walk through these first verses of chapter 1. I want to look at partnership in the gospel and what that looks like, what that looked like for Paul, what that can and should look like for us. So if you would, um, we're in Philippians chapter 1. If you'd follow along with me, I want to read the first 11 verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. God, as we begin to walk through this great letter, and we look at these first verses today, God, give us ears to hear what you want to speak to us, what you want to say to us concerning your gospel and our partnership together in the gospel. Open our eyes, God, to see you fully for who you are. Do a work in our hearts today. Transform us. 
to be more like you each day. God, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. Oh God, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so as we look at this idea of partnership in the gospel today, we're going to see three results, three things that happen when we partner together in the gospel. We'll get to those in a few minutes, but first I want to look at the participants in the partnership in this letter. Okay, so Paul starts right off with Paul and Timothy. Okay, these are the first two participants in this partnership. And he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, there's really no debate at all about who the author of this letter is. Paul is the author of the letter, but he includes Timothy in his greeting because Timothy was with Paul when he first came to Philippi. The members of the Philippian church knew Timothy well. Um, If you would turn over to chapter 2 with me, starting in verse 19, I want to read some of the things that Paul said about Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 19 says, I, Paul, hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So the people at the church in Philippi had a great knowledge of who Timothy was. They knew him well. And so there was a relationship there that was important. And so Paul includes Timothy in his greeting. Paul calls himself and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. The word for servant here is the Greek word doulos. Some of your translations may say bondservant or slave. Here's the definition of this word. It's a great word. It can mean a slave, a bondsman, a man of servile condition. A slave, one who gives himself up to another's will. Those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. Devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interests. Remember that one. We're going to come back to that. A servant, an attendant. The word is used some 140 times or so in the New Testament. It's important that we understand the significance of this term. Jesus used this term when talking to the disciples. You remember when James and John came to Jesus requesting to sit at his right and at his left in his kingdom. That request, when it got around to the other disciples, didn't sit well with them. But Jesus addressed this in Mark 10, 44, by saying to them, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, must be the doulos of all. As I mentioned a minute ago, when we looked at the definition, it carries with it a devotion to another. So much so that you disregard your own interests. Christ above all. In this simple statement, Paul is reinforcing the call of Christ on the believer's life to deny self, to take up the cross daily, and to follow him. The second group of participants that Paul mentions here 
are the saints, all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. The term saints means those who are set apart or holy ones. Your translation may even say holy ones here. Those of us here today who are followers of Jesus, we have been set apart. We are saints. Saints are not dead people who have been recognized by the Catholic Church. Okay, Paul is not writing to a group of dead people. Nowhere in Scripture is found this idea of giving people sainthood after they're dead. Paul is writing to a group of people who are very much alive, and he calls them saints. A key point to make here is that this is not a holiness that is attained by anything that we do. No, this is a consecration done by God alone. He sets us apart. He declares us holy because of the transaction that took place on the cross. John 1, 9 through 13 says this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, Paul says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he... Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So this setting apart is nothing that we do in and of ourselves. This is a work of God in the believer's life. Now I've got a question for you. Shouldn't be too hard. What does the word all mean? It means all. It means Everyone, okay? All means all. So Paul's not writing to an elite group of believers here. This partnership in the gospel is the calling for all of us. Paul's not just writing to the leaders at the church in Philippi either. The leaders are addressed here, but they are a subset of the community that he is writing to. They are not elevated on any kind of pedestal, nor should they be. Church leaders have titles and positions, but they are titles and positions of service and servanthood. Church leaders are no more saintly than church members. All of us are set apart by God, not by anything that we do. We should never seek to put our pastors, our elders, our church staff on any kind of pedestal. Nor should there be any one person with superstar status. Our church is elder-led, and no single elder holds any more sway than the others. There is a teamwork that should be evident in the church from leadership to membership. We are all in this together. We are partners in the gospel. One thing we can't lose sight of here is that we are all saints in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says here. That is our position We are in Christ Jesus. He is the bond that holds us together. He is why people from all walks of life, all backgrounds can come together in partnership. This is why we can go to the other side of the world and we can partner with brothers and sisters in Christ. 
people that we don't speak the same language as, people that we don't share the same culture with. We can partner with them in the gospel because Christ is the one that holds us together. So after addressing his audience, Paul includes his customary greeting of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you hadn't noticed, Paul used the term Christ three times in just these two verses. We're going to see that this is a prominent title that Paul uses throughout this letter. All right, let's get into the results of gospel partnership. We're going to look at three things, as I mentioned earlier, um, and this is kind of where we're going to spend our time today. Let's read again uh, verses 3 through 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the first result of partnership in the gospel that I want us to see this morning is joyful thanksgiving. Joyful thanksgiving. Paul lets the saints of Philippi know how thankful he is to God for them. We see a few things here in these verses related to thanksgiving. First, God is the recipient of our thanksgiving. We give thanks to him because he is the giver of all things. He is the God who cares for us so personally. Secondly, memories are often the occasion of our thanksgiving. Paul says that he thanks God in all of his remembrance of the Philippians. <coughs> Excuse me. For those of you who don't, may not know me well because you're new to LifePoint, my wife Charity and I, we served uh, as missionaries with the International Mission Board for just over 13 years in the country of Wales in the United Kingdom. And I was reflecting this week on our time serving there. Tomorrow, October 31st, marks the day 20 years ago that Charity and I first arrived in Wales. We were in our mid-20s embarking on a two-year journey that turned into over 13. We fell in love with a country and a people, and they left a mark on us that will never go away. I found myself this week thinking about all the fond memories we have of the people we served alongside. And I spent time giving thanks to God for the people who were and still are partners in the gospel as they carry on the work of proclaiming the truths of God to a people living in darkness. God gives us this partnership that we have as members of this local church, and the memories of our partnership and ministry here at LifePoint should cause us to give thanks to God. I often think about our mission trips where we've served together, local events that we've done here for our community, times of fellowship that we have together. And I give thanks to God. I'm truly thankful to God for you and the partnership that we have together in the gospel. Paul's prayer for the Philippian church are consistent petitions for them, and they are done with joy. I think a significant thing to note here is that these prayers are not a chore for Paul. Joyful thanksgiving for a group of people that he dearly loves. As with Paul, our prayers for one another should be characterized by a joyful spirit. If we find that prayer for each other 
is a chore, we really need to check our hearts. Paul called himself a servant of Christ Jesus. Remember, a doulos. One, it's one who is devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interests. Paul joyfully prayed for his friends and partners in the gospel. This should be something that characterizes our lives as followers of Jesus. We should be united in joyful prayer for one another, giving thanks to God for the partnership that we share. Verse 5 gives us the reason for his joyful thanksgiving. And that's, we've already talked about it at length, but the reason is their partnership. This is why he's so grateful. It's why he's so joyful. They have been his partners in ministry from the very beginning, since the church in Philippi was formed. There's been a sharing in the work of the ministry and also a sharing of the spiritual blessings of eternal life and union with Christ. And this is a cause for joyful thanksgiving. This is uh, from an article by Matthew Harmon, something that he wrote on this verse, verse 5. It says, In a day when the term fellowship is loosely applied to any time believers gather together for any purpose, it is essential to regain the biblical understanding of fellowship. What distinguishes true biblical fellowship from simple shared interests and experiences among non-Christians is the gospel-centered nature of biblical fellowship. As such, it is oriented around encouraging, exhorting, teaching, praying, giving, suffering, etc. with fellow believers in an effort to follow Christ. The heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Christian fellowship, then, is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. There may be overtones, overtones of war, warmth sorry, and intimacy, but the heart of the matter is this shared vision of what is of transcendent importance, a vision that calls forth our commitment. Some of your translations in this verse may use the term fellowship. I prefer the term partnership here. But as I just read, this is more than just a gathering together. We are to be self-sacrificing gospel, a gospel-centered community with a shared vision of glorifying God. The last thing that I want to mention under this first result of partnership in the gospel is the confidence that we can have in God. Paul says here, I am sure of this. There's no doubt here. The sanctification that God has begun in our lives will be completed. Paul says in one of his other letters, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Okay, God does the work. God does the saving work in us. He does the sanctification work in us. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, God has begun a work in you that will be completed. This to me is just further evidence of the security of the believer. What God has started, he is going to finish. He will not let you go. That's encouraging news to me today. 
and I hope that it is to you. God has begun a work in you, and he will complete it. The second result of gospel partnership is what I'm going to call an affectionate connection. Look at verses 7 and 8 again with me. It is right, Paul says, for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's good that I feel that way, Paul says. In fact, it's not just good, it's right. It's how I should feel because we are partners in the gospel. This is what Paul's saying here. The joy that he is experiencing because of their partnership in the gospel is wholly appropriate. There's such a close relationship here, a close unity that is rooted in partnership. Paul holds the Philippians in his heart, he says. John MacArthur said this, There are probably people like this in your life. Subconsciously, they're there, and they come to the surface frequently. Your thoughts, your affections for them, you think about them, you remember them, you pray for them. It may be long periods of time that you don't see them or talk to them, but you carry them in your heart. There's something in their life that inextricably is tied, has tied them to you. And you have, you have them in your heart. They're deep in your being. And that's what Paul is saying. I hold you in my heart. This is how I feel about people that we served alongside in Wales. This is how I feel about our brothers and sisters that we serve alongside in South Asia. And that's how I feel about you. We are all partakers of grace. We are all in this together. At the end of verse 7 here, Paul gets specific in talking about his imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul here is he's simply expressing his gratitude for their partnership. They have assisted him through the years and have sent him gifts, sent him care packages. They've supported him in his work of ministry. I remember growing up as an MK in West Africa. We moved to Senegal when I was 10 years old. This was back in the mid-80s when email was not even a blip on the radar. Communication was difficult. Making, you know, most of you in here will probably remember long-distance phone calls that you had to pay for. Um, Long-distance across the ocean was even more expensive. And so conversations with family and friends back in the States was costly. So we talked to, I remember talking to my grandparents, you know, once every couple of weeks. But one thing that I do remember is getting care packages in the mail from family, from churches here in the States who supported us. People would often send us things, sometimes at great cost to them. Because shipping things internationally was not cheap then. It's still not cheap now. But they did it to express their love and support of our family. And it always meant such a great deal to open a box and see all kinds of goodies from the States. Stuff that we couldn't get where we lived. We knew that we had partners in the gospel who loved us and supported us. 
And Charity and I experienced the same kind of thing in Wales. Churches here, families that would support us and send us packages in the mail. The Philippian church loved Paul so much that they sent even one of their own to help look after him while he was in prison. They sent Epaphroditus. We talked about him last time. We'll come back to him again when we get to chapter 4. But in his efforts to take care of Paul, he became so ill that he nearly died. And this was one of their own that they sent to him to look after Paul. In verse 8, Paul goes on to give confirmation and definition of his affection for the Philippian church. He's dealing here with something that people can't see. They can't see his heart. They can't see his affection. So he wants them to understand how genuinely he feels. He says, God is my witness. God can see it. God is the one who can confirm the truth of what I'm saying. And then he says this, here's how deep this love is. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now this term for affection is a, it's an interesting word. It's a word in the Greek that refers to the bowels. He's literally saying here, I love you in the bowels of Christ Jesus. If you look at the King James translation, it actually says that. It's the same word that's used in Acts 118 to describe what happened to Judas after his betrayal of Jesus. We know from Matthew's gospel that uh, Judas went out and hanged himself. Um, And then in Acts chapter 1, some more detail is given about that. Um, And it appears that Judas' attempt to hang himself didn't go so well. So it says that he fell headlong. He burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out. Bowels. It's the same word that's used here in Philippians. And I just wanted to see how many times I could say bowels in a sermon. The bowels were regarded by the Hebrews as the seat of the tender affections, kindness, benevolence, compassion. This was deep-seated emotion. It's like talking about the gut, you know, that gut feeling that you have. Paul yearns for them with the affection of Jesus. This is supernatural. It's not a natural human attraction. It's much, much deeper than that. It's given by Christ to those who belong to Christ. So that brings us to our last point. We're going to spend some time here on this today. The third result is purposeful prayer. It's hard to pray purposefully for people that you don't know well. Would you agree with that statement? Prayers for people that we don't know well are important, but they can tend to be more generic in nature. Prayer for people that we know and are in relationship with, however, can be much more purposeful because we have much deeper knowledge of the person or persons as well as their circumstances. And so here in these last few verses, Paul shares exactly what he's praying for these people that he loves dearly. And this is a prayer. He's telling them what he has been and continues to pray for them. We already know from what Paul has shared with us that the Philippian church are incredibly loving people. They have shown that love and support in many ways over the years. 
And so while Paul is grateful for their love, he prays here that their love would increase, that it would abound more and more, but that it would do so with knowledge and discernment. Love needs knowledge or it can be easily misdirected. And knowledge alone has a tendency to lead to arrogance and is worthless really without love. William Hendrickson, a New Testament scholar, wrote this. He said, a person who possesses love but lacks discernment may reveal a great deal of eagerness and enthusiasm. He may donate to all kinds of causes. His motives may be worthy and his intentions honorable, yet he may be doing more harm than good. Paul is praying here for a spiritual maturity. He wants their love to abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. So that's his request for them, but what's the reason for the request? Well, that request comes in the first part of verse 10. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent. Now, if you've nodded off this morning, it's time to wake up. Okay, I want you to hear this because it's important. I think this is so key and so vital to spiritual maturity. Paul says, approve what is excellent. The word approve here is a word that means to test or to verify or to prove or to determine something. For example, determining the quality of a metal or determining whether money is counterfeit or not. It's the ability to distinguish. The idea here is to set the proper value on something. What is vital? What is excellent? What is the thing that really matters? But listen to this. It's not the ability to distinguish between good and bad. Everybody can do that. Although that's debatable in our culture these days. It is, however, the ability to distinguish between good and best. The discernment that assesses what is best is so crucial. Being able to take your life and focus your time and your energy on what really matters. Approving what is excellent. Abounding in love with knowledge and discernment leads to the ability to distinguish what is excellent. We must choose excellence. Don't let the good be the enemy of the best. And so, what then is the result? I think it's twofold. Let's read these last three verses again, starting in verse 9. Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The first result for the believer who is abounding in love with knowledge and discernment is purity and blamelessness that is manifested in the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Purity and blamelessness. Purity is in reference to the individual. It's having a personal integrity. Paul is praying for a life that is sincere, without hypocrisy, 
a life that is genuine. Blamelessness is in reference to the individual's relationship to others. Paul is praying for a life that does not cause others to stumble. So he's praying here that those in the Philippian church will live lives that do not stumble and that do not cause others to stumble. Lives of integrity, both personally and relationally. And then Paul goes on in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That's actually probably better translated, filled with the fruit that righteousness produces. Righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. We are made righteous through faith in him. Romans 5.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, speaking of Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Our righteousness comes through faith in Christ. Later on in the book of Philippians, Paul says in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness that comes by faith through Jesus Christ will produce fruit. Remember what, we, what James said when we studied that letter over the last few years. He said, faith without works is what? Dead. Faith without works is dead. So Paul is praying for pure and blameless lives, lives of integrity that are filled with fruit, fruit that is produced as a result of the righteousness that Christ gives. I mentioned two results. The first result for the believer who is abounding in love with knowledge and discernment is purity and blamelessness that's manifested in fruit that's produced from the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Secondly, and really the ultimate result is the glory and praise of God. It all comes back to him because it's all about him. This is an amazing gospel-centered prayer that Paul is praying for these people, for his dear friends. What might God do among us if we prayed this way for one another? D.A. Carson said this, put the priorities of the gospel at the center of your prayer life. It takes only a moment's reflection to see that all these petitions that Paul makes here are gospel-centered. These are gospel prayers. That is, they are prayers offered to advance the work of the gospel in the lives of the Philippian believers. And by asking for gospel fruit in their lives, the ultimate purpose of these petitions is to bring glory to the God who redeemed them. Now, I hesitated to include this last quote that I'm going to read because it, it will step on some toes this morning. In fact, it may step on every toe in the room. But I figured since it stepped all over my toes this week, I would share the wealth. So I'm asking you to listen and consider what 
he's saying here based on what we've looked at today. This is also from John MacArthur. He said this. The measure of a person's spirituality is not how well they conform to the demand to pray. I'll pause there for a second. We do see in Scripture the the requirement to pray. Jesus says when you pray. He doesn't say if you pray. We are to pray. So there is that side of a duty to pray. But he says, but how internally compelled they are. Let me, let me start the quote again. The measure of a person's spirituality is not how well they conform to the demand to pray, but how internally compelled they are to pray, simply because their passion for others in God's kingdom is so strong. So while there is a duty to pray, there should also be a compulsion within us to pray for one another. He goes on, he says, that's basic. We have to be compelled from inside. He said, let me put it to you another way, simply. The deepest longings of your heart will come out in your prayers. So if you look at your prayers, honestly, and they're about you, your needs, your problems, your questions, your struggles, then that's where your heart is. And if you pray very infrequently, very briefly, very shallow, that means you have a cold heart because prayer is a compulsion. He goes on, I'll tell you something very simple. All the calls to the duty of prayer cannot overcome a cold heart. It can't. All the calls to the duty of prayer cannot overcome a cold heart. So if you do not pray, it's not simply disobedience. It is that you're selfish and the heart is cold. Gulp. As I was, I'll be quite honest, as I initially looked at this chapter and these verses, I I really just honestly thought, how am I going to get a sermon out of this? But the more that I reflected on it, the more I looked at it, the more I studied it. There's really deep beauty that's here in what Paul prays for the Philippian church. And it really challenged me coming off of our week of prayer uh, last week. It really challenged me in my prayer life. Do my prayers look like this for you? Because I think we would all quickly admit that many, if not all, of our prayers are centered around us. What do I need? What do I need to cry out to God about? And those prayers are right. I'm not saying that they're they're wrong. But if that's all that we're focused on, I think we're missing the mark. We're missing the opportunity to be in partnership with one another in prayer. I don't want to have a cold heart when it comes to my prayer life. I want to be compelled by the Spirit of God living in me to pray for you, to pray this kind of prayer for you, that you would abound more and more in love with knowledge and discernment, 
so that you might live pure and blameless lives that produces fruit that comes because of the righteousness of God that is in you. And that's the kind of prayer that I want you praying for me. So I'm going to close with just a few questions for you to think about and ponder. Is our passion for others in God's kingdom so strong that we are compelled to pray for them? In fact, let's bring it a little bit closer to home. Is our passion for others in this church, in LifePoint Fellowship, so strong that we are compelled to pray for each other? Do we yearn for each other with the affection of Christ Jesus? Do we yearn for one another? Just feel it in your gut. That compels us to pray. I want us to be a people of prayer. I'm not the best at praying but I want to be. I want to pray this way. I want my prayers to be focused this way for my family, for my church, for people that we partner with around the globe. Prayer, I don't think, I've said this before, I don't think it comes naturally to us. I think it's something that we must learn. If it wasn't, then the disciples wouldn't have asked Jesus to teach them to pray. They asked him specifically, teach us to pray. So it's something that God instills in us and that God teaches us. And so maybe that's where our prayers need to begin. God, teach me to pray like this. Put a compulsion in me that when people in our church, in my church, come to mind. I'm praying these kinds of things for them. That's my prayer for us today. And so I leave you with that challenge. Where are you in your prayer life? Is your heart cold? Are the prayers that you pray centered around you? Or are they focused on others? Remember we talked about that word doulas. Let's be those kind of people who put our needs aside to pray for the needs of others. Because think about that. If I'm putting the needs, my needs aside and I'm praying for James Roberts, and James Roberts is putting his needs aside and he's praying for me, then we mutually benefit from that. Prayers are still being prayed for me but I'm not necessarily the one that's doing them. Somebody else is. You see how that works? So let our prayers be focused on others. Communicate with others what they can be praying for you so that together we can be partners in the gospel, that we can grow deeply, abounding in love more and more, knowledge and discernment so that we can live pure and blameless lives before others, before the culture that we live in, before the world that we live in. We can live pure and blameless 
lives that produce fruit. Fruit that comes from the righteousness of Christ in us. Such a beautiful prayer. And that's what I'm praying for you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what amazing truth we discover every time we open your word. Such simple verses and yet such profound depth to them. This beautiful prayer that Paul prayed over the Philippian church. And their partnership in the gospel is reflected in that prayer. He loved them dearly and wanted to see even more come from them. More love. Abounding in knowledge and discernment that would lead to lives of integrity, both personally and relationally, that would produce fruit. Fruit that comes from the righteousness of Christ, the Spirit of God who lives in us. So God, that's my prayer for us today, that we would be the kind of people who desperately desire in our gut to partner together with one another, that we would be compelled to pray for one another in such deep, deep ways. God, we need you. We're going to sing about that here in a second. We need you. Would you do a work in our lives today? Teach us to pray. May your spirit compel us to pray for our brothers and sisters in this room. For our families. For partners in the gospel around the world. Let's stand together and let's let's sing this prayer to God today.